The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and leather gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. This week, David talks to the creators of Wolf 359 in a special episode of Going Deep, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. Filling in for David while he is off making wedding preparations, I'm Matthew Boudreaux. This week, David speaks with Gabriella Rina and Sarah Shockett of Wolf 359. They're talking leadership, story evolution, killing your darlings, and influences. There's so much great material here. And without further ado, here's the interview. So, Sarah and Gabrielle, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Gabrielle, welcome back. Sarah, welcome for the first time. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to be here. It's so great to be back. Is this, Gabrielle, would you say, is this a, so this is a Wolf 359 retrospective. Should right. we call this, is this a going deep episode <laughs> or is this its own, sure, its I'm, own thing? I'm, I've been waiting for the day to I think bring. that's entirely up to you, David. To bring that series out of mothballs. So yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. I would be thrilled to have this be a going deep episode. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, then I'm going to say my name. Gabrielle, you say your name. Sarah, you say your name and then say, and this is going deep. I'm David Reinstrom. I'm Gabriel Urbina. And I'm Sarah Shackett. And this is Going Deep. So, Sarah, you joined the team in season two, right? Uh, Yes. I was sort of hanging out in the shadows during season one. I was getting scripts from Gabrielle and sort of giving notes and line suggestions. And then by the time season two rolled around, he successfully convinced me to come on and write some episodes. And then it just spiraled from there. I was trying to strong arm her into writing for the show pretty much from the get-go. And it just sort of took me about 18 episodes to finally be able to, like, manage it. Yeah. So I want to talk to each of you in turn about Minkowski uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and what she represents to you. Gabrielle knows. I've been, I've been thinking about this for weeks because, yeah, I, I just completed my, you know, most recent listen-through of the whole series. But, Sarah, when you when you write... Minkowski as like the badass driven space commander, whether or not it's early on in an episode like Minkowski commanding or as someone who finally has to live with the consequences of being badass to the point of violence and its ramifications through the final season, what what was going through your mind? What does Minkowski say to you as a leader? Sure. Well, I think one of the things that excited me about her and that sort of I... I saw in her very early on from like Minkowski commanding days is that her badassery and her sort of, I think more than that, just like her resolve stems from her insecurities. And much of Minkowski commanding is her just trying to exercise the fact that she doesn't feel in control. And I think her journey is is a really beautiful one where she sort of learns to be okay with a certain amount of chaos and a certain amount of improvisation in her life um, that she sort of lets go of the military regimented structure that often demeans her but gives her this sort of false sense of security and sense of meaning and her ability to sort of ride without training wheels is something that I think shows a lot of her strength. I don't know. I hope that answers the question. (laughs) Yeah, it does. So Gabrielle knows what I'm talking about. I had this whole Twitter thing a couple weeks ago where I was was talking to Gabrielle and Emma about how Minkowski is this really fascinating archetype of a leader. I I, I will just come out and say it. I think she's one of my favorite characters in audio fiction. Aw. Because she's, well, she's so smart and she's so ready and sensible and it all of it led to this this meditation 
mm-hmm. on the masculinized way that we conceive of charisma, right? That right. Right. Men are permitted a certain amount of messiness and hoarseness, and that makes them more authentic and more appealing. And women aren't allowed, at least as charisma is conceived in the United States, aren't aren't allowed these same freedoms and therefore have to split the difference between being seen as either an uncompromising hard ass or a scatterbrain. Yeah, the sort yes. of uh, strong female character versus uh, a more sort of traditional and, and subservient feminine role. Totally. She is like completely, at the start of season one, totally in that like Eowyn syndrome place of like my strength comes from the fact that I command in this very masculine, militarized, regimented system. And I think Emma does a fantastic job of even when she's in that place, sort of showing that there's there's more to her and that stuff that's more to her is actually more potent and stronger, especially in relief to the other command figures that come along and there's stuff to recommend Lovelace's style of command and Kepler's style of command. And Cutter's style of command is effective, but not recommended not by recommended me. Not recommended at all. Um, <laughs> that, that sort of she has particular empathy and sort of insight that is completely her own and is not like traditionally feminine or traditionally masculine. And yeah, just goes to show. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, Rashika was her name on on Twitter, said, another reason that Minkowski is a good leader is that she wasn't afraid to give up power when she wasn't ready for it. Mm. Yes. Yes. She stepped back because she knew that the Minkowski of that moment being in charge was not what her crew needed. Yeah, that she puts people first. You know, it's interesting. Minkowski and Eiffel were sort of designed as two complementary self-portraits of the two extremes of my personality. <laughs> um, and they sort of were originally designed to be kind of very mirror images of one another. And one was sort of meant to kind of embody definitely sort of my pop culture loving side and my sort of slightly contrarian, my sort of scattershot side. And the other was sort of designed to embody my almost addiction to order and to sort of systematic structures that hold things together and make things run by a certain amount of clockwork precision. And the reason why I sleep so little is that I have both Eiffel and Minkowski inside my head at all times. They are (laughs) both me. And that was a little bit the operating principle for their personalities at first, I didn't sort of set off with anything like a grand statement about leadership with Minkowski. But what I found eventually in season two, well, there were two things that I found. The first was that Emma, from the word go, played her so humanistically and with such an enormous heart and with just like so much underneath all the fluster and underneath the overwhelmedness and all the frustrations, just like ocean of emotionality and an ocean of warmth for the people around her. And humor, too. And humor, That's absolutely. what strikes me. So I discovered that, number one. And secondly, that in a weird way, that sort of like very need to have order where order was impossible was kind of what made her the perfect commander for a place like the Hephaestus. Because it was just sort <laughs> of, it doesn't matter how crazy it is. It doesn't matter how nonsensical it is. It doesn't matter how far outside the scope of everything that I could have ever prepared for this has gotten to. I need there to be order in my life. And that order includes the people that I care for being safe and being on track and being able to sort of continue existing. Yeah. She has Um, a very humanistic idea of what success is. Yeah, absolutely. To the point of being borderline quixotic in her command style. And you sort of see that with all sorts of things like, we're going to sit down and we're going to have dinner no matter what, gosh darn it. Or, you know, or we're going to have a talent show. I don't care, you know, (laughs) whether people want to be in it or not. We're going to bond because the manual says we're going to bond, gosh darn it. All of which started coalescing in my mind around season two. And as soon as we sort of started thinking about that, I realized that inevitably 
that was then going to have to be a journey of her realizing that what matters is keeping the people safe. What matters is the things that have emerged as my priorities because of the system, not the system itself. And so she then had to sort of be confronted with that. She had to sort of have someone come in and take the order away from her and sort of go, I'm in charge now. Now I sort of get to define everything here. And to then sort of have her go too far trying to get that back, to then have her take a step back and kind of be like, clearly being in control is not the most important thing right now. So I need to not be in control. I need to have someone else manage things. So yeah, so that sort of ended up being like very much like the core of her character, even though it was something that we found in the writing. So looking back over the course of the last three and a half, four years, right, what have you learned about yourselves as writers and directors? That we steadily lose our ability to edit and to deliver scripts yeah. of a reasonable length. <laughs> um, um, that, that time that we thought we were not going to enable each other, that time never came. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, no, so aside from our utter inability to kind of edit ourselves, I think that we really learned how addicted we are to the idea of constantly changing things or experimenting with form or sort of switching up the format of the thing that we were writing. I think that when we started Wolf 359, part of the idea was there's going to be an element of absurdist comedy to this, and a big part of that is going to be how little things change. Like, this is just going to be a show about four people stuck in a space station, and no matter how crazy things get, it's always just going to be, this is how things are, and they're just going to kind of be there the next week, and part of that is just going to be the humor of it. And that lasted for about three and a half scripts before it just, like, asserted itself as completely not what the show was. Right. And I think that we ended up sort of having a show that a lot of people would say that part of its notoriety is how much it changes and evolves and grows from not just season to season, but also sometimes episode to episode yeah. where formats are changing and perspectives are changing. And suddenly we're doing an episode where it's all presented as a radio show within the universe. Suddenly it's an episode where people can't talk. Suddenly it's an episode set inside somebody's mind. And yeah, and I think that that's one of those things where we just went into it with an idea and the show kind of went, <laughs> you people are adorable and how wrong you are. Here, here, here. Let me just point you in the direction of what you actually want to do. Okay, there you go. There you go. Okay. So I think that that was sort of like a big lesson that we will carry forward, kind of just like knowing that we have that like very strong formalist streak running through us and that we want to incorporate that into whatever we write after Wolf. Sarah, what about you? I think definitely learning how to listen to a narrative and that, I mean, it was something that I sort of intellectually understood before, but just being a part of it and just feeling that stories have their own gravity and that sort of similar to Minkowski, you're in control, but you're not um, yeah. as well, is one of the most thrilling things about writing this show is just realizing that it it, it'll talk to you and have its own logic to it. I also definitely was not um, just personally as collaborative a person before this experience. I sort of was very precious and, and stayed in my cave a lot of the time. And everything I did on the show and everything that I, I will do after the show will be stronger because I you know, know to show it to this gentleman. <laughs> oh. And... Uh, yeah, really, like multiple voices and multiple heads in in service of a single vision make that thing all the richer. And we also think just learned so much about listening to the thing itself. Like, yeah. you know, we've talked so much about like Wolf 359 had something that it wanted to be. And each of the actors illustrated a character that was related to what we had in our minds, but everyone just kind of like also taught us who these people were. So we definitely learned a ton about you have to both know what you're going after, but also constantly be listening for yeah. what is happening in front of and you. And often you won't find what it was until you've you've gotten there, I think. Yeah. We had sort of 
very set ideas that just uh, at like at every stage and every season that ended up being like, no, this is this is wrong. This, this is, is wrong. This is not be. this is not what it wants to do. Yeah. The amount of big architectural decisions that were in place from the beginning that got thrown <laughs> out as the show got written right. is honestly a like a lot higher than yeah. any of us would have ever thought. It's interesting because I think many times I've heard from writers that characters don't always behave in the ways that you initially expect them to. But I've never heard someone say the show itself had like a gravitational pull. Yeah. I think that Wolf 359 absolutely did. Um, yeah. I always think about Stephen King in his book about writing sort of mentions that he feels that books are like fossils. They're things that are sort of out there somewhere. And in writing, you kind of are excavating the fossil and just sort of like finding different aspects of it. And I definitely sort of feel that Wolf 359 was something that we started excavating. And back when it was just like me and Zach, we were kind of like, yep, this is definitely a velociraptor. This will take like three days. (laughs) And it turns out that we had like a gigantic brontosaurus. And, you know, what we thought was like the entirety of the thing was just like a contour of its skull. I think that a lot of it is the characters behaving in ways that you don't expect them to behave. Yeah. But there was absolutely kind of an element of, and you sort of hear us figuring this out over the course of the first season of just kind of like things that we were writing that we thought like, oh, this is kind of absurdist comedy funny we're starting to land much more as like, no, this feels much more like thriller intrigue than kind of surrealistly funny. Yeah, and I think Um, the formalist interest that you had from the start is also a part of this. I remember getting, I think it was like the second draft of Am I Alone Now? um, And just being like, oh, so this is a show that does this. Right. Interesting. And Am I Alone Now is a series of monologues, right? Yes. That's right. That is sort of the first big formal departure in the show. That's right. And when, you know, you have a series that is concerned not just with the characters, but sort of the the way that they're expressing themselves and and, and the format of, of how the story is conveyed, then, you know, you really have to to think about stories in ways that you might not otherwise, neither a good or a bad thing, just a choice. Yep. So I want to talk about things you wanted to import into the form. I mean, to to start off, the two of you are both movie buffs, right? You're big radio buffs. Yes. You snuck in references to lights out and quiet, please. (laughs) Was there craft from golden age radio that you wanted to import into the form? Uh, and what were the what were the film and other media that you wanted to import into the structure of Wolf? Oh man! Oh, that's a very, very, very big question. Yeah, how much time do you have? Yeah, <laughs> I got time. If you got time, it's later for you than it is for me. <laughs> no, and I think that like we've been very upfront about Wolf three fifty nine is absolutely a show that was built around and by incorporating all of the things that we love. You know, and I think that like sort of the big operational thing was I was writing the series kind of in a like, I miss this TV show called Farscape that went off the air in 2004. I am going to try to do something that feels and sounds like Farscape, but on the radio. And that sort of informed the overall tone and characters and plotting and just sort of like the sense of the show as a whole. But... Beyond that, I think that we were shameless in just taking from everything we loved. Yeah. And there were definitely sort of, there are moments, for example, when Hira and Maxwell are talking about sort of memories and insecurities and thoughts that are, I think, like more than anything influenced by this high school drama called My So-Called Life, Mm -hmm. just because I was like, what is the best conversation that I've ever seen anyone write? about feeling like you don't fit in. And the answer to that was these two teenagers talking about social pressures in this high school drama from the 90s. And I think that we just had this like attitude of like, bring it all in, anything, anywhere, just whatever works, technique, character moments, beats, whatever is the thing 
that is best suited to move the story forward. We welcome it and we encourage it. A lot of the times techniques came up not because we think it would be cool to have like a Radio Lab episode of Wolf 359, but because we would like to do something different and we think this is a thing Eiffel would attempt to waste time and also sort of feel <laughs> useful because they don't know what to do. Like a lot of the time sort of, I think technique arose out of either logistical or character challenges that we had written ourselves into. I know that like certain things originally sort of let's have a POV shift where we're following someone all day that is an Eiffel or let's have an episode narrated by Hira were like goalposts. Yeah. But it wasn't always... You know, I I love that community episode with six different right yeah remedial no like chaos let, remedial chaos there like yeah. where they where you play out the same scenario six different times let's do that but with our characters that wasn't generally the operational process and you know I think that the thing that we most consciously imported was when we actually kind of asked ourselves what's something that isn't done in radio, yeah, or what's something that another medium does like that, that radio feels like it would struggle with a little bit more? And is there anywhere that we can kind of energize it? Like, you know, like we sort of became fans of trying to do radio montages. Yes. Um, which we did in um, Mayday. Mayday and then Out of the Loop in season four. But that was, um, it was much more hubristic of a decision than a smart one. It wasn't sort of us going, ooh, this might be a like, good technique that we're familiar with. It was sort of us foolishly setting off into the uncharted waters <laughs> and kind of going like, you know what? We don't have montages. Let's do it. How and also just that? like in that particular moment of like, what would be the worst way for Eiffel to experience something? Yeah. And, you know, really mark out how arduous and unusual this is. Have you heard right. a radio montage? I haven't heard a radio montage. Let's try a radio montage. Let's, let's try a radio montage. Yes. Now, on the other hand, I think that one of the things that I did consciously bring in from the golden age of radio is a certain degree of playfulness with the narrator um, yeah. voice. So if you listen to a lot of, say, Quiet Pleases old episodes, they're all sort of narrated stories. And sometimes they can get very, very creative in terms of Levels of narration. Yeah, and sort of like you'll hear a, someone say something and then the narrator will kind of go, that's what I wish I'd said. And you kind of have this moment of like, oh, okay, hang on a second. Because I don't have the visual in front of me, I really thought that the character was saying that, but now I'm reconstructing the scene knowing that that was an internal moment. Okay, cool. And I think that sort of episode, we brought that into episodes like All Things Considered, where yeah. the levels of presentation and the levels of narration were part of what was the fun of the episode and part of what the conflict was revolving around. What are some things that you think you couldn't have done without the audio medium? Because sometimes I want to call Wolf 359 cinematic, but to call it that to me kind of diminishes it because it's not only cinematic. Yeah. Sure. You know, this is one of those moments that I think best illustrates the sort of thing that radio can do really, really well and film can't. It's actually from an episode that Sarah wrote from Limbo in the third season. And there's a moment when Dr. Maxwell comes in to speak to Hira and she's telling Hira, I've run all the checks, I know that there's something wrong. I know that there's something that is making you not, you know, be operating as perfectly as you could be operating. And Hira is sort of defending herself and kind of going, no, there's nothing wrong. Stop bothering me. And Maxwell kind of shoots back, yes, there is something wrong. And Hira sort of goes, no, there isn't anything wrong. Maxwell sort of goes, Hira, I absolutely know that there's nothing wrong. And Hira goes, how could you know that? And Maxwell replies, because I don't think that you noticed that the lights in this room went out two minutes ago. Uh-huh. And as the audience, we get to experience that moment with Hira. We get sort of that same jolt of like, oh, God, Maxwell is absolutely right. And, you know, you sort of retroactively go back and rejigger the scene and sort of realize that, like, 
the certainty from Maxwell's voice was coming from having this visual information that you didn't have. And anything like that where the medium is concealing information for a purpose, where you or are being... Or rejiggering it. There's a moment uh, for comedic effect in an episode that you wrote where Eiffel and Hilbert are having this argument and yes. Minkowski comes in um, and is like, there's a number of things wrong with this picture. Thing number one, thing number two, and where is your clothes? Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's again that sort of moment where you as an audience member are forced to sort of reconsider mm -hmm. uh, what your understanding of the scene is. And that's like a kind of, I, I don't know, sort of endorphin high engagement thing where you're suddenly more active and you, you get to sort of repurpose the scene as it's going forward. And it kind of makes you feel like a smart detective. You yeah. kind of feel there is a little bit of a pleasant release. You're right, Sarah, in kind of going, oh, I just sort of understood this thing that fundamentally shifted my conception of what was happening. Um, you get to see it anew. Yeah, and there is something very pleasant and rewarding about that. Um, are you ready to take it to a heavy place? Oh my gosh. Yeah, let's do it. I'm always okay. ready for the heavy place. Let's go. So I want to talk about Memoria, which is one of my very favorite episodes of Wolf 359. I think ours too. It, it always makes me cry. And I, I remember that it came out now just before the 2016 election. And it's so weird it to think of it now, yeah. right? Like this meditation on deprogramming yourself from the learned behaviors of abuse or the necessity of therapy. At least that's, that's how I read Hira's discovery of the malicious I can't do it code, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so weird for me to think of it as occurring in this moment just before – what felt like the entire country became swathed in abuse and anxiety. But that's my, that's how I read it. What is this episode about to each of you? It's a little bit of everything, really, when we were thinking about it. And it's funny because what eventually became Memoria was something that we wanted to do in season one. Yeah. Um, what eventually and was, then wanted to do in season two. Right. Uh, what eventually became Am I Alone Now and Minkowski Commanding. Originally, both of those were, the idea was this, there's an episode here that will be an episode narrated by Hira. And in both of those cases, Michaela Sui, the actress that plays Hira, didn't quite have enough time to record a full episode. And we would w have wanted to, she was uh, and is uh, living not in New York City. Um, and for Memoria, we wanted to have her in a studio so that she would sort of have the time and attention to do a hero narrated episode properly. So that didn't work out the first two years. And part of what made Memoria such a heavy hitter was that it was an episode that we've been thinking about for two full years. Yeah. Um, and that we had kind of gone through various drafts of conceptualizing it by the time that it got to the point of writing it. When I was drafting it, I think that the main things that I was thinking about were, <laughs> this is going to sound so frigging pretentious, <laughs> um, but like really what I was thinking about was mostly theological memory theory. And there's a reason why the episode opens with a little bit of um, St. Augustine. Of from, Confessions? Yeah, from, exactly, from chapter 10 of Confessions, which is one of the things, the most like beautiful things ever written. And it's sort of this like long meditation about how memories are the place where we find ourselves and where we create ourselves and where we define the way that we see the world, and for and Augustine, faith. where we eventually sort of find faith and where we find God. And I was fascinated by sort of the concept of what happens when it is not fallible, subjective human memory, but sort of objective AI memory, and sort of how do you define that? And eventually came back around to what is most fascinating is the idea that that memory wouldn't be infallible, that there would be sort of this idea that somebody could have come in and planted something, and that all of these things that you were so sure of were yourself and your own identity that you found in your memories was something that somebody did to you. And that was sort of something that I found 
fascinating on a completely intellectual and a completely theological level. And naturally, as soon as it came out, people interpreted every single possible way, except that one. Everyone <laughs> was sort of going, this is such a great treatise on, say, anxiety and mental health. And I found those things incredibly flattering. I am so relieved and thrilled that people have been able to find meaning in that episode on those fronts. But it wasn't ever something that we were, I think, consciously thinking about. So to you, it was always a question of theology. For me, it was a question of theology. For me, it was a question of self-recognition and self-definition. And self-definition. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of where I was thinking at. Um, Sarah, what about you? Yeah, yeah, sort of a, a very similar place. One of my absolute favorite memories of the process of, of putting together Wolf 359 was the day that we had to sort of sit down and break what became Limbo and Memoria. And I was being very, very annoying um, <laughs> and uh, a naysayer and sort of shooting down the story as it was originally conceived, could have gone in a lot of different directions. And eventually for me, it sort of arrived at the place of like, what do you allow in your conception of yourself? What do you refuse? What's there that you have to reckon with one way or another? And for me, it was very much about Hira's definition of herself. And I think it is one of the things that if it doesn't make her human, makes her a person. What if I told you that that memory of breaking limbo and memoria was a memory I implanted? Ah! Oh! It, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I would believe you would have that power, David. If anybody would, it sure. would be you. God, that's so interesting. I, I, yeah, it's right there in the script, right? The Augustine. But I, huh, that's fascinating. Thank you for that. No, and again, and it's so much of Wolf 359 is kind of based on this idea of, you know, everyone is either kind of searching for a higher power outside of themselves and in the process of doing that, finding themselves or thinking that they're looking at themselves and instead finding sort of the fingerprints of, of some a higher, purpose. higher power yeah. that altered them. Um, that was sort of a recurring cyclical thing for the show very consciously. Sure. So I assume uh, Eiffel's ultimate fate was also part of that cyclical thinking? Mm, In large part. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't something that we planned from the beginning, but no. it was something that we eventually kind of arrived at. at it's kind um, of making this sort of heavy, again, like gravitational sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It kind of rhymes. It does. Yeah. It does. It definitely does. And sort of this idea of... This character who has for so long sort of been, whether wittingly or unwittingly, sort of operating in a somewhat selfish place, saving everyone and saving sort of the person that he cares the most about by being selfless, not in the sense of putting his life in danger, but in the sense of I am literally going to give up the things that make me me. That felt resonant in a good way as we were deciding everyone's ultimate fate. Well, then you kind of have this ship of Theseus question, right? Yes. Like, mm. is is Eiffel still Eiffel? Yes. What does it even mean to be Eiffel? That's right. And, <gasps> yep. you know, and even as far back as Memoria, you know, Maxwell is presenting sort of this idea of your memories make you you, that's it, end point. But even then, Hira has a little bit of pushback. Hira is sort of still going like... It can't be that simple. Like, it can't, we can't just be our memories. I think that that is an argument that I continue to find fascinating and continue to find disquieting and absorbing all at the same time. Do you think souls exist? I personally do. And I think that if you asked me to define what a soul is, we could be here for a very, very long time <laughs> as I like rambled. Um, but do I think that there is something that is intrinsically tied to who a person is that goes past mere biology and past mere memory and is a little bit of both and neither at the same time? 
I would personally say yes. Sarah? I I also would say yes. And I would say that our understanding of what going beyond is probably is very incomplete. I'll echo and that. The 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 nature of a soul and how tied it is to a person is not something I think that's knowable. And I sort of come down in a very Wolf 359 place of ultimately what matters is that we figure it out together. Right. Yeah. Does Hira have a soul? This this falls into like my next set of questions. Um, sure. About, yeah, about personhood. I, I think mean, I know what you're going to say, right? Well, you know, this is, it's funny because we started writing the show thinking like, yeah, this is a show about isolation and about, you know, extremes of human psychology. And, and extremes of, of behavior yeah. and how relationships warp. And, and one year later, it was like, no, 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 no. That's just, that's just silly. That's just a window dressing. This is a show about communication. Communication. That's what the show is about. It's hard, yo. That's, that's it. That's the thing. We got it. And like two years later, we were kind of like, oh, no, it's not about communication at all. Communication is there, but what it's really about, it's about personhood. It's about how you, that is sort of the core of the show. Who gets to be a person and who has personhood denied them? Exactly. Yeah. Who decides? And sort of how do you defend your personhood without taking it away from someone else? Yeah. Um, and what's kind of terrifying about getting to that point is that then you kind of look at each other and you sort of go, well, what do we want to say about that? Like, you know, <laughs> and sort of, you know. Thank goodness it happened very late. It did happen quite yeah. late. But our answer for ourselves as we were writing the show is, who is a person? Whoever asserts that they are a person. The only thing that you need in order to be a person is to ask for people to look at you as a person just to sort of assert your personhood. Yeah. And you have it. Um, that it's not... you deserve it. You know, the, the great tragedy is we all sort of have these instincts of, of tribe and in-group and out-group. And the actual answer is that you're allowed in if you want in. Yeah. So Price and Cutter are not still people because they don't, they don't give a shit. I mean, right. they're asking to be treated as considerably more than people. That's right. They they have no interest in something as pedestrian as being a person. They're interested in being the architects of people. They're interested in being yes. above it all. Um, and that's like a kind of immortality that they are chasing in addition to actually not dying. And the moment that you sort of start talking about we want to make better people. We want to sort of make people that are more people yes. than the people that are here now, That are less are disappointing and less... Deficient in some yeah, way. Yeah, flawed people. Um, that, I think, is sort of the moment that you can argue you are renouncing your personhood when you start to sort of say the very concept of personhood as it exists right now is flawed and insufficient. And can be engineered. Yeah. Do you remember in... The apartment in the film, the apartment, when Jack Lemon's, you know, next door neighbor, the doctor, yep, mm -hmm. like demands that he be a mensch, a mensch, yes, that's right, that he be a like a person, yeah, absolutely. I I feel like this is a series about people learning to become mensches <laughs> in in many ways, in, in many respects. Yes, you're not absolutely. wrong, and it's a lesson that everyone has to learn in their own way. But yeah, I think that they are going through a lot of similar journeys. And The Apartment, which by the way, if you have not seen The Apartment. Oh, go watch it right it is now. It's one of the best It's one of the best ever scripts written. ever. Um, amazing film. But it has sort of that genius structure of, there are all these things that are expected of a man. Like, you know, he needs to have a great job and he needs to sort of do well and he needs to make money and he needs to- Go up a, the ladder. Right, and he needs to, you know, romance the ladies and all these things. And it's like, you can be a great man and not be a mensch. And at the end of the day, sort of that, like, being the good person is better than being the great man. Yeah. A hundred percent. No, because, I mean, it's like, the great man is is an isolated figure yeah. um, who can only have 
certain kinds of relationships with other people. That's right. Kind of transactional relationships with other people? Yes. Yeah. Okay, shut up and listen. I'm not Mm. telling you to shut up and listen. I'm referencing the episode (laughs) titled Shut Up and Listen. So for those of you playing along at home, that's the episode that begins with Eiffel and Hira putting together a Radiolab-style, basically, recap of the show. That's the UF overview. Our clip show. But ends with Eiffel getting schooled about his privilege by the women on the crew. I I have a couple of questions, but let's start here. I think one of the advantages of science fiction is its ability to take topics that are maybe a little too hot to confront head-on and are best approached through metaphor or analogy. With a certain margin of separation, yeah. And safety. Yeah. Um, But I think that the conversation that Eiffel has first with Loveless and then with Hira and then with Minkowski is a conversation similar to the conversation that I think, I hope, a lot of men, white men especially, have been having with their friends for the past few years, this your jokes are hurting me conversation. Mm -hmm. And my question, my first question, is what were you aiming at by making Eiffel's bigotries, the casual anti-AI, anti-alien, and ultimately anti-immigrant kind? Well, you know, when the show began... Way back in season one, we sort of had this plan about, you know, we're going to go a very, very long time only hearing Eiffel. And it's going to be just Eiffel's perspective. And we're going to hear about all these other people and especially about how awful Minkowski is. And And then at some point, very, very later on down the line. 20 episodes, 30 episodes down the line. We will finally hear Minkowski and the audience will realize what an unreliable narrator narrator Eiffel has been. And I was persuaded to not go that route and to actually have the other people from the start of the show. And the problem is that then you meet Minkowski and you immediately, because she's played by Emma and she's Minkowski, she's wonderful. You don't ever sort of have that moment of genuinely believing that Minkowski She's just this heartless um, tyrant. tyrant. So then we realize that Instead, it needed to go the other way around. It needed to then be an episode where, like, the realization wasn't about Minkowski not being awful. It instead had to be about all of the ways in which Eiffel has been, you know, sort of a problematic person throughout the series, finally coming to a head and getting called out by everyone. And it had to be late in the show. As far as why it was specifically about those things, about sort of alienness and about sort of artificial humans versus organic humans and about immigrant narratives. I think that at the end of the day, one of the things that we were all sort of realizing was how powerful the show was in the way that no one's physical appearance and really no one's sort of like nothing, yeah, nothing identity markers. Right, that there was really, never sort of anything on yeah. there of that sort. And that is why we sort of wanted to have it be that way. Why we wanted it to, to be mostly be a conversation about sort of this character being a alien duplicate of a human and sort of an artificial intelligence person calling it out so that it could be an illustration of these sorts of conversations about privilege without ever sort of needing to reduce any one character to they are this specific thing that this character has been picking on. Except we did want to have something that was a little bit more of a bridge between the world of abstract science fiction and day-to-day decision-making. And that was why we kind of zeroed in on Minkowski and sort of the way that Eiffel has been. That was a conversation that we knew we wanted to have before Shut Up and Listen. Oh, was that, a was a con- that was yeah. a conversation that way back in season one, around episode two, Emma and Zach had a disagreement about how to pronounce Minkowski's name. Yeah. And we looked it up, and Emma was right. And Zach sort of argued, but Eiffel would say it wrong. Like, Eiffel would continue to say it, it wrong. It would be like a tiny form of rebellion. It would be, a yeah. yes, a little sort of rebellious thing. And as soon as they said that, I knew one day that's going to explode. At some point someone will sort of sit them down. And it was interesting because at various points throughout the series, 
people would sort of kind of go, why does Eiffel say her name different and nobody talk about it? And I was just like, wait, just just hold on. It's coming. It's- this was this was also a Zach question. I remember there were several times in studios where he would sort of just sort of instinctively say it correctly. And um, we had to sort of sort go, of like, no, 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 say it wrong. Say it the bad way. I I want to talk about Minkowski's speech at the end of that episode. The English wants to sound that way when it comes out of my mouth speech. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that was a very triumphant, cathartic speech for a lot of people to hear. To at last have it said that Eiffel was fucking up Renee's name. Because it's a name. It's important. Mm-hmm. Um, is there biography there in that speech? Are you comfortable talking about that? Um, I am because there really isn't a whole lot of it. I definitely sort of identify as an immigrant. I grew up in Costa Rica. Spanish was my first language. And I moved to the States when I was 19. And my name is Gabriel. A lot of people do heroic jobs that are still not quite right. A lot of people do pretty bad jobs. But fortunately, it is a name that is close enough that people are able to easily understand it and easily sort of are able to kind of deal with it linguistically in a way that I've spent a lot of time talking with, say, my South Asian and East Asian friends about their experiences of having sort of their names mangled by people in the States. Like, I remember sort of around the time that I was writing that episode, a friend of mine from India publicly asked everyone to just, like, start calling her by her chosen name because her name had just gotten so like mangled by everyone for the past six years that she was just like, I'm done. Like, just just call me this thing. Just call me by this nickname. And that's it. It'll be less hurtful that way. Um, and so I was drawing a lot more on those experiences than on sort of anything that I lived with myself. Sure. That is heartbreaking to hear. And I apologize if I have been Underpronouncing Gabriel. Oh, it's fine. You know, it is one of those things that for whatever reason, it has never deeply and truly bothered me. I think partly because, again, there is sort of that, like, it is close enough that I'm able to sort of see where and when people are trying and when and how they're being respectful. Whereas for other people, I think that that gulf is that much bigger. and it is much, much easier for people to land unwittingly or wittingly in the lands of insensitivity. So Shut Up and Listen and the episodes that follow it feel very real to me in that they track Eiffel first being confronted with his privilege and how he's been a dick. Two, Mm -hmm. then he sulks like Achilles in his tent and centers himself in the problem. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. And then three, finally listening to Loveless, that the solution is not just to apologize and back away and live separately, but to like live your apology and just be better and come the fuck down to breakfast. I don't really know how to make that a question. I just want to have a conversation about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sure. Right. And I think that that was sort of something that um, in many ways we thought that Shut Up and Listen was going to be the hard episode to write. And really that one, um, the the radio part, the sort of like Radiolab-ish parts of it were what was tough to write. Once you got to the confrontation, I think that no, flowed out of us of, very easily. Yeah. Constructive criticism oh was, I think, one of the toughest episodes that we ever wrote. Um, it's up there. It and, was it was kind of a monster. Yeah. Is that the one with the question game? That's 52. That yep. is the one immediately after, after Shut Up Shut and, and Listen. listen. Um, and it is the one where he's been sulking for about three weeks. Right. He's been sulking and his sulking leads to something going terribly wrong. And then the crew sort of has to take shelter. Um, and they spend some time dicking around, playing the questions game. And then there's sort of a moment where, again, this is what strikes me as particularly realistic. It's not something that Eiffel comes to on his own, but that other people have to prompt him. That's right. No, no, no. The solution to this is that you just come to breakfast and be our friend and be a better friend than you've been. You sort of throwing sackcloth in the ashes is another way of making it about you, That's which has right. been the whole problem. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds that sounds very accurate and and right. Oh, man. 
Well, thank you so much for going deep with me on Wolf 359, you two. Anytime. Always it's a pleasure. what we're here for. Absolutely. If you like what you heard, the entire Wolf 359 series is available for your binge-listening pleasure on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Join us over on Patreon, where for $4 or more a month, you can hear an extended interview with Gabrielle and Sarah, where they discuss westerns, fandoms, and some of David's current audio favorites. Your generous donation of $1 or more a month keeps the lights running, and you get early releases of every episode ad-free. To help us out and reap your rewards, join us over at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or your favorite podcasting platform. And now, some credits. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find him over on SoundCloud. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. Filling in for your host, David Reinstrom, I'm line producer Matthew Boudreaux, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. Storytellers welcome. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.